Welcome to What the Mill. What the Mill is powered by Proximity International and is a space for in-depth, honest discussions on all things research, monitoring, evaluation, and learning for humanitarian aid and development. My name is Ezra Carmel, and I'm joined, as usual, by my Melster nerd accomplice, Richard Harrison. And today we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Sasha Jesperson, who is a research consultant focusing on organized crime and conflict. Sasha, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. We're really excited to have you on, and I've, I've really been looking forward to today's episode because I feel like we're tackling one of the most common obstacles of ME work in our sector, uh, because we're going to be talking about measuring things that are just hard to measure. And I think almost everyone who's listening to this podcast is in, in some way interested in measuring impact and measuring change. And, and sometimes measuring the impact of projects can be fairly straightforward. Um, for example, um, with projects that are quite concrete, like working on maybe infrastructural de- uh, development. But then in other programs, the things we want to measure can be a, a lot more elusive. We're looking, for instance, at, at behavioral change or governance change. Um, these processes you know, may not only be occurring within a complex, dynamic environment, but they're themselves things that are difficult to measure or to count. And it's, it, it's these difficult-to-quantify impacts that we end up, I think, spending most of our time on. It's really, I guess, the epicenter of our work, focusing on the hard stuff, trying to get hold of a, a slippery phenomenon. And, and making sense of it. And I know both of you have a lot of experience engaging with these difficult to measure change processes. And I know you've worked together on some serious and organized crime projects that have really faced these sorts of issues. So maybe we could just start off by you providing some examples of these, these hard to measure things that you've encountered in your work. Yeah, I'd be happy to have a go at that. But before I do, um, just, just want to put out there, I'm taking under review the, the epithet male nerd. Ezra, which it was my new, this <laughs> my introduction. <laughs> As Sasha knows, that is who I consider myself, but I'm I'm not sure now whether that's on brand for me. Anyway, so that's my na- big announcement this week. Um, I mean, I think there's a range of scenarios where you come across this kind of problem, and and I think one of them, maybe the most severe one, is where actually ambition is high. I mean to say, when I have a feeling that when people are stretching themselves when projects are trying to really aspire to create a lot of good change then they come under more pressure to describe what they want to measure Um, it becomes more challenging another example would be i think training i think particularly for those who are familiar with the kirkpatrick way of thinking you know and in particular the sort of higher level sort of institutional change, trying to get institutions to change, where you're thinking about indicators such as propensity for uh, senior decision makers to change their their views or, or take big decisions. I, I, and of course, a lot of the time, you know, you're reaching for these qualitative indicators where you don't have much choice because you can't serve a community. You know, you're really trying to speak to a small number of people. I, there's a couple of examples, but Sasha, I know with your serious organized crime you know, experience, you must have come across this any number of times. Yeah, I think I think understanding what works in in responding to organized crime is is a big challenge. And because the I guess the change that we're measuring is is so elusive, as you say, Ezra. Um generally the metrics have been arrests or seizures of people involved in organized crime or the commodity that they're moving. Uh, but that doesn't really tell us a lot. On the one hand, you could say that it tells us whether or not uh, law enforcement is effective at their job. 
but we don't know the extent of the impact that that's having on the organised crime groups or the commodity that they're moving. The arrests and seizures have been behind the the term coined the balloon effect, where effective law enforcement activities just move organised crime in other directions. So maybe it's effective, but maybe there's a there's an unintended consequence to that. And, and even with arrests and seizures, there was a recent report put out by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime that suggested that uh, arrests and seizures could actually be an indication that the political protection systems that organised crime is invested in are not working. So we don't fully understand uh, what it is that we're measuring and what it indicates. And the way that programming on organised crime is moving of becoming more preventative, I think that becomes even more difficult because we're measuring the absence of something. So if you're delivering a program uh, to deter people to join gangs, we can't measure the counterfactual of uh, how many would have joined the gangs if this program hadn't been absent. And there are, there's definitely some ways of doing it. And we can, we can probably discuss that later on. Uh, But I think that's, that's the challenge. Um, And there's so many assumptions in assessing the effectiveness of organized crime. In the 1990s, there was a lot of interdictions of vessels that were coming from South America into Europe across the Atlantic. And that's uh, understood to have created the shift to West Africa as a transit hub. But we can't actually prove that that was what happened. It's more just an assumption of we did some good work here. Now this area has opened up as a transit hub. Uh, so I think it is a really slippery concept. Uh, and it's not it's not just organized crime. I think it's any phenomenon that's hidden. So violent extremism, conflict, Uh, They're not things that are very overt or measurable to begin with. So how do we measure change on those things? Yeah. I I, I don't have a fraction of your experience in serious organised crime, but it it is a sphere where I think I said the dumbest thing I ever said in in my male career. And I was speaking actually with somebody from the National Crime Agency about their log frame. And I found myself asking them, after they had quite a successful year the previous year, they were part of an exercise that, ended up in a lot of cocaine being found. I, I think I said something like, how much cocaine do you think you'll find this year? Like, <laughs> <laughs> as if as if they had any like any control over the effects of, of their work. I mean, wow, that's just dumb. But there's something in there, isn't there, about some sectors or some industries, you, you just sort of, you can't really predict what the fruit of your labour will be as other as easily in others? No, I mean, is is that not part of it in in serious organised crime? It is, but I don't I don't think that was actually as dumb a question as you might think. Uh, because, oh, awesome! Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you look at, uh, I guess, measuring cocaine, uh, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime and the US government estimate how much cocaine is produced. So they use satellite uh, imagery and other surveillance to estimate how much coca is being grown. Uh, and I guess cocaine is is a bit easier than other things, given that it is very centralised, that it's Bolivia, Peru and Colombia, primarily where it's grown. So you can have a bit of a sense of how much is being produced. Uh, and then there's also data on cocaine use. So in Europe, uh, there's analysis of wastewater, which can give you an indication of how much is being used by the population. So in that sense, you kind of know how much is coming to the destination market. So there is definitely something there in terms of understanding how much is seized and how much they should be aiming to seize based on how much is produced and how much is coming. Then I take back my previous comment and declare myself (laughs) a genius. Thank you. I guess you're absolved, Rich. Cheers, dude. So so when 
When you're faced with these slippery or elusive things that you need to measure, what do you suggest doing? You know, what, what advice would you give to people that are, that are in this predicament? If I may, I, I think this is pertinent the moment then when the intervention is being evaluated or is close to an annual review or something. I think the, the, the problem here or the, or the challenge is, you know, you've got your log frame, you've got an indicator, you have written it. Let's say it's qualitative. Let's say, you know, it's been carefully shaped. It's, it's not bad. I feel the, the, the sharp end of the problem is that it is, you know, not categorical, unlike a quantitative indicator. It is subjective. And I feel like to answer your question, you've got a couple of tricks, but in essence, you're trying to suck out the subjectivity from the situation. You're trying to make it so that when someone scores you or you score yourself on that indicator, you don't just allow yourself to be tempted to take the favorable view. And, and let's face it, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. In many interventions, in many situations, you're going to be part of a team where it doesn't matter if you're the med advisor, if you're a team member, if you're the donor, if you've written a qualitative indicator and it is therefore not you know, as categorical or smart, you're going to be under pressure to take a favorable view on it, which you can hardly do with a, with a categorical quantitative indicator, right? So for me, I think you have a couple of main tools to get around that. W- one is to put on top of the indicator a scale or some kind of explanation or, of what you mean by the qualitative indicator. So often we think of ourselves as, as having to make indicators concise, and that's true. But I've seen people, I've seen Diffid do this, you know, inside the sort of log frame Excel book or whatever it is, have another sheet where you have a, a more intricate scale that explains what change, what good change is like. So take my institutional training example. You know, you could say that, you know, really good change would look like these individuals making commitments like that or a memorandum of understanding. You know, you just give yourself permission to take a different space beyond, you know, the very small footprint of the, of the log frame and, and the indicator space and paint a picture. Another one would be, and on that well wavelength, making a mail plan, right? That being a document where you unpack all the indicators and give yourself freedom to explain the spirit of an indicator, even if you can't quite make it you know, perfect, if it's of this nature. The other, I think the other main tool you have is to suck out the subjectivity by making sure you're not on your own or that the, there is a genuine independent view of what can be a more subjective setting by creating a peer review system. Or, or what is sometimes called, I mean, contribution courts or for a different setting. But I think if by its nature, if, if you agree with this, you know, a qualitative indicator or, a, you know, measuring a slippery thing means that, you know, it's easy to, uh, you know, mark your own homework, then, then create a handful of people who are genuinely objective, pretty senior, and throw the evidence against the indicator to them and, and, and let them score or judge, you know, remove yourself from the subjectivity. Yeah, I don't know. How does it pan out in SOC world? What do you end up doing, Sasha? How, how does it end up coming to fruition? Uh, that's a tricky one. And I think it's an area that's still emerging. So the last couple of years, I've done a few pieces uh, for different clients trying to understand what works on development programming in particular, uh, but also other programming on organized crime. And it was really, I guess, quite shocking how weak that evidence base is just because there hasn't been a lot of measurement of of effectiveness. Uh, It does mostly come down to, say, outputs and outcomes. 
And I think it's, it's interesting what you were saying in terms of picking up some qualitative indicators that I think there's scope to push beyond some of these. Uh, and so it may be similar to your example around training that uh, you're training, say, police or prosecutors to ensure that they're familiar with the legislation or they're putting it in practice, that they're collaborating with their counterparts in another country. And the indicators tend to be how many people showed up to the training, because once you get beyond that, in terms of, I guess, knowledge retention, or putting that in practice, it becomes a bit fuzzy that it's hard to measure that effectively. But I think there are, I guess, hybrid qualitative quantitative indicators. So if you're trying to improve uh, collaboration, uh, it's not just contact between different counterparts. So say if you have a prosecutor in country X, uh, whether or not they're contacting the prosecutor in in country Y, but what are they engaging on? Uh, Are they sharing information? And I think that moves beyond the subjectivity that there is there is something there with real substance, but it is getting at the the meat of, of what what we're trying to achieve in a particular activity. But I think that still comes down to capability rather than impact on organized crime. So I think the tricky question is how you take that to the next step of understanding impact. And where we're at at the moment is generally using proxy indicators. So in Latin America, in particular, homicide data is used as an indicator of impact, which works to a certain extent, given that uh, organized crime in Latin America is so closely linked with violence and, and homicide is an outcome of that. But it doesn't necessarily work elsewhere. So a lot of organized crime in Africa doesn't have the same level of violence. So you couldn't create any correlation between homicide. So you need to be thinking a bit more creatively about what the impact might be. Yeah, for sure. And and Rich, do, do you also often end up using proxy indicators for, for complicated processes of change? I mean, I'd say I don't really, and that's probably a shame. You know, and I think that comes back to the, the raw sort of naked politics of day-to-day life in, in serious donor implementer circles. Maybe that was a bit dramatic, but but what I mean is like <laughs> if you're part of God, if you it was okay, I'll take that as ridiculous. But if if you're part of a team that is trying to achieve something difficult, you know, is the boss going to be willing to accept a proxy indicator that doesn't feel like or look like the essence of the program i mean i think probably in i mean sasha tell me if you're wrong but i think i suspect that in sock circles there's a bunch of really um experienced folks who just have to get on and and have been around the bush so much on measuring stuff that they i'm guessing they they somehow um accept proxy indicators for stuff but i i I don't know i feel like at least in my world as a male advisor running between projects and programs often not very used to being measured the first temptation is to you know want to make sure that at the end of the year the data that is there you know really mirrors the theory of change so i guess yeah i want to get more into encouraging people I work with to to think about proxy indicators and have confidence to accept that they that they can work. Can I put a challenge to you on yeah. I guess how you would measure a, an intervention. So one of the conversations that I've been having as part of a, a project recently is on the effect of interagency teams. So it's it's a common strategy right. that you you bring different law enforcement agencies together so customs, police, immigration, 
depending what's present in a country. And so that might be a team that's based at the airport, profile people coming in to do investigations. It might be at seaports or you also have wider transnational organized crime units that are just based in a country and it's part of a wider collaboration. Mm. And there's a lot of assumptions on why that's a good thing, that you're bringing different capabilities to the table, but there's also an impact on corruption in that if you're a police officer and you're sitting in a team with your counterpart from customs, you're less likely to engage in corruption because you don't want your agency to be seen as the corrupt one. So it's almost, I guess, raising the bar um, across the board. But a lot of these things are just assumptions. So what what would you do to measure the effectiveness of an interagency team? Yeah. So I don't think you have a cat and house chance of quantifying that. I mean, that seems obvious to me. I mean, I think you could, if, if, if we lived in a world where male spend existed 10 years after the thing, then I would say you could have a sort of quantitative measurement of that, uh, you know, an academic retrospectively 20 years after could possibly, I think, I'm guessing here, enjoy measuring something like that by looking at, you know, collective total net arrests or, you know, um, you know, sort of good crime prevention happening. But but yeah, I mean, uh, let's see what you feel about this. But I would be inclined to try and arrive at as objective as possible, a qualitative interaction with senior people from each of those agencies, and maybe something above that, if, if that is plausible, like the relevant justice ministry or or something like that but then this is like the cold face of the problem right because everyone in that setup is motivated to say i mean it's there's no there's no cost to them of saying oh it's all very good you know so i guess actually thinking about it i would probably then try and i'd have to want to i want to counterbalance that i think i'd want to counterbalance you know counterfactual almost that audience by having if that existed in the given country civil society or you know, someone who's a naysayer in that space. But I mean, that's the best I can think of right now. But I mean, what, where have you gone with it? Have you had to sort of make a decision on that? Or no, I'm interested to know what you think. Not yet. It's something that I'm thinking about uh, because um, I, I guess um, just contrasting development approaches to organised crime, which are still reasonably new, yeah. it, I guess it's less surprising that there's a weak evidence base on using development tools to tackle organised crime. But it really surprises me that some of these... Uh, interventions that we've been doing for much longer, like interagency teams, we don't have a good way of measuring their effectiveness. It's just, we assume they're a good thing, so we keep doing them. Uh, And uh, so one thought I've had is whether you could do some kind of randomized control trial, which I guess is is never going to be perfect. But if you could take an example where there is an interagency team and develop some indicators about the work that they're doing and what impact it's having and then look to a different example where there is no interagency team where you've got different law enforcement agencies doing their own thing independently I guess you would still have a lot of things that are not necessarily influenced by the fact that there is a team or other I guess other um, things pushing on their ability to do their job effectively Uh, so I don't think it's perfect but maybe that's a way of just trying to assess whether or not they're having an impact but yeah. I think then you still come up with this challenge of, okay, but in each case, what are, what are we measuring? Are we measuring whether they've had a number of arrests or seizures or some of the more qualitative things? So the, the relationships that form between different agencies, and then what does that mean in terms of the working environment or the way that they pursue uh, their work? And so I think 
I, yeah, I have some ideas, but I don't think it overcomes these challenges of, of what are we measuring and what does that tell us? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, this is a great example of why it's so hard, right? I mean, blimey, you've been doing this for years and years. You've got a PhD, you know, who knows more about this stuff than you? And it's still it's still a, a, a tough one, right? So if any male people or anyone's listening to this, you know, I think part of this for me is, you know, cut yourself some slack. Don't worry if you're sitting there thinking, blimey, this is a tough situation. Like, there's no rule book. So, yeah, uh, I, I'm glad we're discussing it. And in terms of sort of cutting slack, Rich, um, a key part of the issue Sash was mentioning before related to that, that sort of difficulty of getting um, from the output and outcome level to the impact level. And I guess to somewhat play the devil's advocate here, I wonder if there's ever a temptation or, well, I'm sure there's a temptation, but maybe let's say a rationale for staying at the outcome level where it's it's possible to be a bit more tangible and sort of foregoing that attempt to move up to the kind of impact level measurement. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been tempted, probably on the days when it's 10 o'clock at night and I really want to go to sleep and I'm feeling lazy. No, I, I mean, I think the answer has to be no. Uh, you, you've really been flying in the face of contemporary thinking you know and i think you're 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 being kindly provocative but like you know if if a world in which we just measure outputs is a sad dreary sitting in the corner with no mates world you know i think outcome measurement is about change um you know i think the only argument for it is that maybe we as an industry i, I feel that how we go about measuring change, which I feel is important or essential, is not quite yet good enough. I mean, to say, I see so many different attitudes towards change management. I see so many different attitudes towards building of indicators for outcomes. I feel I see this belief that only big increases in potentials is good, whereas sometimes in a worsening context, you know, a mild negative could, could, could be a win. I think the world has some, maybe one day we'll do a show on, on this podcast of outcome measurement, you know, are we good enough at it or something like that. But but no, I think I think generally you've got to aim for outcomes and impact. I think another interesting issue is impact measurement, like does anyone measure it well? But I don't know, Sasha, in your circles, what's what's the situation with like pressure to measure outcomes versus pressure to measure outputs. How do you and those around you feel about that? So the the problem with organised crime programming is that it is mostly measured in terms of outputs and outcomes. And then there's quite a big causal leap between what that means in terms of impact. There's been There's been some interesting examples of where there's been an attempt to measure impact, but it's less by implementers and more something that academics are doing to just understand better what impact means in terms of responding to organized crime. And it's actually less about organized crime and more about, uh, I guess, crime more broadly. So Chris Blackman has done some interesting experiments in Latin America where he's looked at communities and the impact of policing and other interventions. And so he's used randomized control trials, but doing it at a very local level of comparing municipalities and what impact different combinations of interventions has had. And there's been some really interesting findings that policing on its own is not really that effective at reducing crime rates. But when you add in municipal services and other interventions, that there is actually a reduction of crime rates 
but without the displacement of of crime to other areas. But I guess it's still not taking that to the organised crime level, that that's that's a more measurable uh, activity than organised crime. And then when it comes to implementing programmes directly on organised crime, there is this causal leap. So one example is programming on drug demand reduction. And the argument behind it is, as well as addressing some of the harms caused by uh, organised crime and drug use, the idea is that if you reduce demand for drugs, that it'll uh, have a knock-on effect to the the business behind it, that there'll be less demand for drug trafficking, so it will impact organised crime groups. But in terms of measuring that, it tends to focus on how many users are accessing a service. It doesn't even go beyond that in terms of the impact on drug use in the in the community of focus, let alone what impact that might have on the drug trafficking business. So I think that's the gap that really needs to be addressed is you have these outcomes from programs. And then what does that mean in terms of what it is that you're trying to achieve bigger picture? Which we more or less had a previous uh, show about actually, Ezra, didn't we? With Andre. Yeah. Um, but absolutely. I mean, I mean, I guess this is another, we could spend a week talking about this, but you know, how much better Mel would be if somehow that it was um, a way of joining up everyone's melling into a holistic ecosystem, but maybe, uh, maybe in a hundred years. Yeah, maybe. And, and Rich, I really liked your, your earlier confession of your, your dumbest Mel comment. One of them. And I would love it if you had any other examples of, of, other, um, other other dumb ones. Well, yeah, just any mistakes. <laughs> How long have you got? Any of the the hard won lessons that that others can learn from as they grapple with yeah with other hard to measure things. I mean, I think the obvious scenario, the the, the common scenario that, that we're talking about now is where you know one well intended, bright, capable person has written an indicator that sounds something like we will see an increase in X Y Z something ephemeral like institutional buy-in on this or or that and then what happens is we get to the end of the year and no matter how well carved out that indicator is you know people people leave jobs all the time don't they or different people approach different sets of words with different perspectives and if an evaluator comes in and sees that sets of words well maybe they're they're motivated to critically uh, assess that they they find that the words are are lacking so i guess if, if it's that scenario you know, really, that I, I, maybe I'm repeating myself here, but I think the trick is to allow oneself to create the space somewhere in the mail documentation to elaborate really what is meant so that anyone then coming to look at the indicator and, you know, the targets or what have you has less chance to feel like they need to criticize or don't understand well enough to, to assess. Just, you know, just feel like you have permission to elaborate obviously write the thing as well as you can in the first place in a participatory manner but i think for me the you know the first thing is to is to make sure that your team is working in a way where you know you have good filing such that if you want to write down and explain well what an indicator really means everyone knows where your explanation is you know you've written a mail plan you've taken the time to create a scale or an explanation and, you know, and then you're really getting into the male skill of just relationship building. And I think part of doing male is trying to be a warm, encouraging force in a team uh, and, you know, encouraging ambition, encouraging faith and belief that we can aim high and measure it. But also the benefit of doing that is to then encourage enough belief and 
interesting, Mel, that, you know, when you say, you know, I've written down what that meant here, people actually, you know, that there's a system that follows you and, and, and so forth. So I kind of want to take that a step back or even a few steps back and, and kind of bring that warm, fuzzy person into, into the team earlier. Because one of the things that's been really bugging me recently, and it's, it's definitely something that I've done myself, but there's so many research reports on organized crime, and they tend to be investigating a particular issue and then providing recommendations of, okay, we need to do this in order to address this problem. But it's really easy to throw out a recommendation and say, this is what we need to do. But then programs get implemented on the back of this. It would be really good to bring in a male lens at that point. And rather than leaving it at the recommendation stage, take that to the next step of, okay, this is what we're putting forward as a recommendation. This is what the evidence says on whether this type of programming works. Uh, So this is why we're recommending it. And this is how it needs to be done. These are some of the considerations if you're implementing this type of program of like it reacts badly with this or it reacts well with this. And I know that's a bit of a, I guess it's wishful thinking that uh, it would be that straightforward. (laughs) If there's policymakers listening, I think they're probably thinking, yes, that's that's exactly what we need. And it, it may not be that easy, that there may not be evidence. You might be coming up with a recommendation that hasn't been tested before, which which is really exciting. But I think there's still scope to say why we think it's a good recommendation, not just this seems to be a gap, it's an obvious thing to do, but thinking through whether or not a particular recommendation even has the potential to work and how that might fit within, I guess, a theory of change. And I think this is the other disconnect that obviously theories of change are really important from a male perspective, that this kind of creates the framework for measuring outputs, outcomes, impact. But when theories of change are being developed as part of program design, I don't think it's always that well connected to male. You're thinking, okay, what do I want to achieve with this program? And what are the steps that we need to take? And I think this is where the causal leaps come in, because there's not really a discussion on Mel at that point of how we would measure these steps. So you don't need to be accountable for how they're going to be measurable. And so then you have a Mel person coming in, maybe at the outset of the program, maybe at the midterm of the program when it's time to measure it, thinking, what the hell am I supposed to measure here? There's not, there's not really anything tangible. So yeah, so I think bringing it in way back uh, at recommendations and program design is important. Yeah, well, I mean, very nicely put. I mean, I think you, you're you touching there on two important arcs, and I, I won't take us off too much. But, I, you know, I think you're talking, you're touching on the learning agenda there. I mean, I had a friend from the UN message me the other day talking about uh, her programming, and, and they had so many recommendations, but it just felt like nothing was sticking. And we started brainstorming the idea of a, an online mind map learning wall thingy. I don't know if, if that makes any sense, but but I think the tension we were feeling is that any project or program can generate so much good thinking, but unless the community as a whole has a place, sort of a playground in which these ideas are shared and aired, then how can you expect collective improvement in the caliber of thinking at the beginning, i.e. theory of change thinking? You just end up with theories of change that are wishful, not enough thought goes into the evidence between the sort of nodes in the logic chain and, and all that jazz. So, yeah, I definitely hear your pain. I, I just, I don't know how to put into words, but I, I feel like after I've retired, something will come along that 
really, you know, learning will accelerate as it is, you know, and, and take off and, and connect programs so that they, they get to incubate these ideas in a solid, visible way. And, and then, you know, you'll see that loop back from solid learning to better theories of change. But I think just to, uh, just one last thing on this point, uh, and I'm not sure if we should be talking about this yet, uh, but the program that Rich and I are going to be working on together, I think, provides really exciting opportunity to, to pick up on some of these issues. The Home Office has been delivering a global stock program, and we're going to be running the, the MEL program that runs alongside that. Uh, and so as well as the standard MEL components that you would expect, there's also a considerable research component. So doing research into SOC threats in, in priority areas, but also on particular thematic areas that are of concern to the UK government. Uh, and so I think that gives us an opportunity to bring in some of these male questions in the recommendations on the back of the research and turn that into a more, I guess, consistent approach in terms of building uh, measurement into, into SOC programming. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> Good luck with the project. Um and still thinking about theories of change and, and grappling with complexity, I wanted to ask you both, if you think it's a bad sign when we end up with a, with a theory of change that, that I guess puts us face-to-face with measurements or indicators that are elusive or measurements that are difficult, is that a sign that there's, that there's a problem in our theory of change? Yeah, I think it can be a signal of that, right? I think it, it... Of course, the, the the big monster with the most teeth in, in theory of change world is the temptation at the beginning of the cycle of a program to say that you'll do everything, right? I mean, I think uh, increasingly when I think about theories of change and the art of theories of change, I think about how remiss I have been in putting limits on them, specifically, particularly geographic, right? It's very easy to say, you know, we will you know, do X, Y, Z in, in Northeast Nigeria. Well, I mean, even Northeast Nigeria is huge. And then I imagine myself being in a hundred villages and looking around at what X donor is going to do. There's no way you're going to touch the entirety of um, the space. Uh, so I think because that's a common illness with theories of change themselves, you know, it, yes, it's plausible that if you feel yourself in this problem you know it, it could be part of that but i think more often than not it's not about that i think more often than not it's because the change you want to create is elusive or outside of your control i remember actually sasha and i were in northeast nigeria we were working on a governance program together do you remember this and and we were working on an initiative which aims to put in place um, a whole village meetings for two days, I think it was. And the idea was to light up, in effect, the, the appetite for democracy um, and good governance in, in those villages. And um, yeah, I'm not going to say who it was, maybe, but like, it, you know, we felt like we were looking at a team, I think it's fair to say, who knew what they were doing, but needed qualitative indicators to, to sort of explain very profound cultural, fundamental social change they wanted to describe. And so I think, sorry, uh, let me come back to your question. I, I, think, I think it's more commonly a reflection of ambition. You know, I think it's more commonly a credit to the people who've found themselves in the situation whereby they're just trying to be brave, trying to go to sleep at night, feeling that they've 
done as much as they can. So in, in that sense, you know, I feel like it's kind of good to be in this space. Your intentions are probably good. And I, and I, you know, I sort of implore all the actors in this situation to take a breath, sit together and say, okay, how can we get to a point where we accept that this is hard and we give ourselves permission almost to go in this direction? I don't believe myself that, you know, this mantra about smart indicators, you know, I don't, I don't really quite see life in that way. I don't think everything can be specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bad all the time. You know, I think, you know, where you where you really got a high performing team, that mantra sort of can be too much sometimes. I don't know. Sasha, how do you feel? Yeah, I think there's definitely something in there around around the ambition. Uh, and so just to bring it back to organized crime, I think the challenge is that the ambition is generally to tackle organized crime. And we haven't exactly pinned down what that means. Like, does that mean to disrupt the groups that are facilitating organized crime? Does it mean to undermine a market? But I think maybe we need to not dampen the ambition, but maybe make what we're trying to achieve a bit more tangible. So the example that I spoke about earlier in terms of drug demand reduction, so having a theory of change that drug demand reduction will reduce demand for drugs, which will tackle drug trafficking. Maybe it's enough that we're tackling drug demand or drug use or problematic drug use. And that in itself is the impact because that's that's definitely more manageable. And then the connection between that and drug trafficking, maybe we don't need to prove that at this point, that this is enough. And sure, there's some assumptions that that will have a knock-on effect to organised crime, but there is a, a causal linkage that demand creates supply, but it, it also is a bit elastic. So that's not an end in itself, that there's still a need for more interventions, that it's not just drug demand reduction on its own will tackle drug trafficking. But then I think the other side of this is this is still an area that is developing, that there's new new intervention types that are being put on the table that are being tested. And we don't necessarily know what effect it's going to have. We can We can have a clearer sense of what the outputs would be of a particular intervention, but in a way, it's a bit more experimental of seeing what the what the effect is. And so in that sense, I guess it doesn't matter that the theory of change may not be completely thought out, that we need to just see what happens. And almost after the fact, then pick up the pieces and, and figure out what was useful, what wasn't, and treat it as a learning process. But it doesn't need to be all set out from the outset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... So thinking about all the, the different things we've been discussing, what are, what are some of the key takeaways for, for dealing with the measurements of elusive processes? Do either of you have any kind of guiding philosophies or mantras for m and in these, these difficult contexts? So I've been really critical on the lack of an evidence base on what works on organized crime programming. But I think to pick up with something that Rich said earlier, I don't think we need to be that hard on ourselves. Like, I think we need to be conscious that the evidence base is weak and that there is a need to develop that evidence base and test some things. But it's really exciting that the appetite to do that is there. So I think maybe being open to experimenting, being okay with not uh, having a perfect process in terms of measuring impact Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to get to the end stage, that, that it is still a process that's evolving. But I guess what inspires me is that there's a lot more people that are asking the right questions and are interested in understanding what works or testing things and being a bit more critical of what it is that we're doing and and what effect it might have. And also, I guess, linked to that, there's a lot more awareness of 
the potential unintended consequences and trying to think that through before we jump in uh, and start implementing a response to organised crime that actually, if you were to, say, strengthen strengthen a border area, that that might have an effect on livelihoods of just the informal cross-border trade and dividing what what is serious in organised crime versus, well, this is technically illegal, but it's not really having a, a global effect. It's uh, the benefits outweigh the, the negatives. So I think, I, I guess my key takeaway is that it's such a nuanced debate. There's so much at play. So it's it's really good to be having these discussions and asking asking questions and just continuing to probe and and build up, uh, I guess, the practice from there. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I feel like I've changed a bit. I'm not just saying this for the for the listeners, but I feel like I've changed a bit during this show. I feel like deep down, I have to confess that you know I, I come to become a bit cold to qualitative indicators because I'm just so jaded with coming to the end of a financial year or something and and having people decide that an indicator wasn't that good or not feeling convinced by the power of it. But I think particularly because, you know, serious organised crime is so interesting and we're about to work on it together, funnily enough. But, you know, just just talking it through today, I I think I, and this is echoing a bit what Sasha said, I, I think, you know, I feel that it probably is a good thing and, you know, that you're probably barking up the right tree if, if you find yourself in this situation. And and here I'm repeating myself. I, I, I think do talk to people around you and just articulate that you are, as a male person, perhaps, you know, struggling with feeling that the, the way of measuring you come up with may be slightly imperfect. So discuss it, see what comes up. But then those, those tools or tricks we discussed earlier, sort of feeling that you have permission to elaborate around the indicator, either through a separate sheet or, you know, a mail plan or, or calling in other people to, to supply that objectivity. You know, I, I think Sasha's given a more strategic response. You know, I'm just sort of coming at it in sort of male tech, tactical, there you go, male nerdster. I think that we better we better consider that. <laughs> I guess now. you have to keep the moniker. Yeah, I'm afraid so. I'll answer my own question. But yeah, for me, those are the main things. Well, that's probably a, a more optimistic note than we normally leave things on. So that's probably a good place for us to jump off today. So, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's really been great to speak with you. Yeah, thank you, Sasha. It's awesome to have you on. Oh, thank you both. It's been a great discussion. No, thanks again. Yeah. And thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of What the Mel.